Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Gone Medieval by History Hit. My name is Dr. Kat Jarman. Alfred the Great is, without a doubt, one of the best-known kings of early medieval England. We know quite a lot about his life, not least because he had a biography written about him during his lifetime. However, we know very little about what happened to him, or rather what happened to his body, after he died. The search for his remains has involved some highly dubious antiquarians and quite a bit of detective work. And now, modern methods may well have made a breakthrough. In this episode, I'm very excited to find out more about this. So I've invited along Dr Katie Tucker. Katie is an osteoarchaeologist, so a specialist in the study of human skeletons. She's a research associate at SOAS at the University of London and was formerly with the University of Winchester, where she led a new search into some graves that may just contain the body of Alfred the Great. Thank you so much for joining me today, Katie. Thank you very much for having me on. So very briefly, now we're not really going to go into Alfred and his career because that's a different episode and a different story. What I really want to get to is your your detective work, really, to try and find out what happened to him. But sort of very briefly, just in case some of our listeners aren't that familiar, can you sort of, in very simple terms, tell me who was Alfred the Great and what happened to him? Okay, yeah, because this is always something that I say to people. It's like, I always say that I really know very little about Alfred the Great when he was alive. <laughs> as soon as he died, then I'm fine on that. But when he was alive, uh, mm, don't ask me all the intricacies because I don't know. But basically, he was, I think he's the only English king to have been given the name the Great. And he was a late Saxon king of Wessex. And he died on the, this I can be very specific about, on the 26th of October in the year 899. and. That's who he was. Famous for burning the cakes, but whether he actually did or not is another story entirely. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely a, a man of many myths and legends, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. But so let's go then to, to what we really were here to talk about, which is what happens from that point on when he dies. So we know the date he dies. Do we know where he was buried or, or what happened to his body when he died? Originally, he was buried in the old minster in Winchester, which had been built in the 7th century, I believe. And he was buried in a tomb of porphyry marble, apparently. And it said that once he was buried, that he was not happy because it was said that monks were reported to see his ghost walking around the old minster, that he didn't want to be buried in the old minster at all. 
because he wanted to have like a new church that would be his kind of family mortuary church. So eventually he didn't actually build any part of this church, but his son, Edward the Elder, did build a new church right next to the old minster, actually, which appropriate enough was called the New Minster. And when that church was built, then Edward had his father's body removed, moved out of the old minster and reburied in the new minster. And then Edward himself was also buried there. And uh, Alfred's wife, when she died, and various other members of the family were also buried in, in the same place. And they were very close. The new minster and the old minster were very, very close to one another. And it was said kind of right from the beginning that there were arguments between the two groups of monks because the buildings were so close that um, they would have choir practice at the same time and it would be kind of the noise of the two choirs practicing together would be really harsh and horrible and the bells would be ringing at the same time out of tune with each other and there was just apparently kind of lots of arguments between the two groups of monks which kind of got worse, really, when the old minster was replaced by William the Conqueror with the new Norman Cathedral, which was even bigger than the old minster had been, and that encroached even further onto Newminster. So eventually it was decided that kind of something had to be done. So the monks of Newminster were given some land on the north side of Winchester, and in around 1110, 11.11, there was enough of the building, the new building had been built uh, where the new minister was moving to, an area called Hyde in Winchester. So they were then able to move over the community of monks to the new building. And it's debated or not whether the bodies of Alfred and Edward and everybody else was moved over at the same time. There aren't really any medieval sources to support it, but we kind of have to presume that if they were going to move the abbey to Hyde, as it now became Hyde Abbey, they were not going to leave the bodies of Alfred and Edward and everybody behind because they were demolishing the new minster. So they weren't just going to leave them kind of in a demolished building. They'd have to take them all with them. But unfortunately, there really aren't many medieval sources about whether they did or not. But we kind of have to presume that they did. There is one later medieval source that does put at least Alfred within the new Hyde Abbey. I think that's a 15th century source. But then kind of the next we really hear about the tombs actually being in Hyde Abbey and the bones having been moved there was after the dissolution. So the Hyde Abbey was obviously destroyed in the dissolution. A lot of damage was done. And Leyland, when he did his kind of tour around the antiquities of Britain a, a few years later, went to the site of Hyde Abbey and said that he saw the tombs. There were two tombs. There was a tomb of Alfred and a tomb of Edward. And he said that at the time of the dissolution, the tombs had been opened and two little lead plaques had been removed from the graves. So there seems to, certainly by the 1540s, I think it was, that the tombs are definitely located there. Then kind of nothing really seems to have happened for a couple of hundred years. The, presumably the tombs are still kind of there, maybe falling down a bit or whatever. We don't really know. But then for whatever reason, they decided to use the site of Hyde Abbey to build a new bridewell, a new prison. 
And there's quite a lot of documentation about the building of this prison. There's newspaper reports saying that they found a tomb which had two skeletons lying next to one another in this. They said they were kind of lying promiscuously on top of one another. Quite what that means, I don't know. And that they were wrapped in some sort of rich fabric. There was also a local soldier, he, I think he was a colonel or something called Henry Howard, who was stationed in Winchester, which was obviously a very kind of military town. And he was also a kind of antiquarian. He was very interested in the archaeology, particularly of Alfred. And he was very interested in this work that had been done at the, at the building of the prison. So he went and he spoke to the, person, the superintendent who'd been in charge of the work when the prison was built. And basically, he produced a report for the Society of Antiquaries. And this report said that there'd been this excavation that when they were building the governor's house, which was supposedly in the east end of the Abbey Church, and they'd found a sarcophagus that was covered on the inside and the outside with lead. And that within this sarcophagus, they'd found some bones and some fragments of fabric and gold and various other bits and pieces. And they said that they'd thrown the bones about, that the lead had been stripped off and sold, and that they'd broken the sarcophagus down and reburied it in the hole where they'd found it because they said they wanted to bury it as low as the spring, which presumably is, there's no spring, there's just quite a high water table on the site. So presumably that's what that meant because they wanted to get rid of all this stuff because that was where the governor's garden was going for the new governor of the prison. So they wanted a nice garden. They didn't want all these bits of stone in the way. So then kind of you think, right, okay, that's it then. That's the remains of Alfred and Edward and anybody else destroyed. So that's kind of the first part of the story. You think, okay, gone. Yeah. So that seems like a sort of almost impossible to, to go anywhere from there. And I think an important part of this story, I suppose, is that we don't quite know for certain if he was there, but it does seem very likely. If we're going back to some of those early things you said, he was definitely there in Winchester, buried. But also I think where he isn't is another key point for, for arguing that he was moved there. So this is a, probably the topic of a, another episode entirely, but a lot of these bones were moved into and later buried in Winchester Cathedral. And there were lots of remains in that location as well. But Alfred is never mentioned there. He's never mentioned really as being buried anywhere else, is he? There is no record of him being anywhere else. I mean, as you say, there's a lot of these records about who was reburied in Winchester Cathedral. He's never mentioned. And you would have thought that if there was some claim that Winchester Cathedral could have had on the remains of Alfred and his family, they would have made that claim. Yeah, absolutely. Because it would have obviously been a very important person to say was buried in the cathedral. But they never claimed he was there. So presumably that means that he definitely was not. They had no reason to think that he was there. So presumably that would mean he would have to have been taken out to hide. They wouldn't have just left them in a abandoned, demolished building right next to the cathedral, because if that was the case, then presumably the cathedral would have dug them up and taken the bones. Yeah, no, exactly. So I think that's a really, really important part of it. So moving back into your story. So this was the first part. So we have the early, you know, what happened in the medieval period itself, everything that happens later and all this sort of potential throwing around of bones. 
But then there's quite an interesting character who comes in next, uh, isn't it? Another sort of antiquarian investigating and trying to get to the bottom of this puzzle. Tell me about him. Yeah, he is a rather interesting character indeed. His name is John Meller, and he kind of turns up unannounced in Winchester in about 1866. The first we really know about him is some letters that were written to the Hampshire Chronicle by somebody just calling themselves Q. We don't know who this person is, who was complaining about John Mellor and that he'd taken upon himself to conduct all these excavations at the site of Hyde Abbey and that he was basically just violating tombs and throwing remains about and treating these remains incredibly badly and that really it needed to stop. This is what Cube said. John Mellor then actually replied to this letter. So we have his letters in the Hampshire Chronicle as well, saying that, no, he was doing everything with the utmost respect and reverence for Alfred and that actually, now you're saying it, I have found the remains of Alfred and I actually found them on Alfred's birthday on the 26th of October. So there you go. I have the remains of Alfred. I found them. They were in a tomb, undisturbed. And I also have the remains of Edward and the remains of Alfred's wife and the remains of Edward's wife and some other people as well. And the remains of Grimbold, who was a, a monk kind of confidant of Alfred, whose remains had also been supposedly taken to Hyde Abbey, though probably as relics, actually, rather than kind of as a complete skeleton. And he also said other things like he'd found the head of St. Valentine, who was also one of these relics that was supposedly moved to Hyde Abbey, and also embers from the fire that Supposedly, Hyde Abbey was very badly damaged in the anarchy, in the route of Winchester. So he said he found embers from the fire of that, and he um, found all these other things. And uh, yeah, and he, he found these skeletons, and he knew that this particular skull that he'd found was definitely Alfred, because he compared it to a coin of Alfred, and it looked exactly the same. <laughs> scientific. So this is how he said he knew he had Alfred. So he's quite a character. There's a lot of other, these kind of backwards and forwards went on for a bit in the newspaper between Q and John Mellor. Q accusing him, for example, of trying to sell the remains to some wealthy gentleman in Winchester and turning up at their doorstep with bones, seeing if they wanted to buy them from him. And there's one tale that he turned up with some bones. The gentleman of the house was not at home. So a housemaid very reluctantly took the bones in and then they were thrown away the next morning by another housemaid, disgusted that there were these bones thrown away into the dustbin. Quite whether that actually happened or not, we don't know. And then he was supposedly also trying to get the people to take these bones to be exhibited. And I think he was just basically trying to make money in any way that he could from the remains that he'd supposedly found, well, did find at, at Hyde Abbey. And eventually then the vicar of St. Bartholomew's Church, which was just outside Hyde Abbey, it was kind of the parish church for the Hyde and had been built it was there at the same time as Hyde Abbey, took it upon himself to kind of gather up all the bones so they could be given a decent reburial. And there's actually a, a record in the church register of five shillings being paid, which presumably refers to him giving John Mellor five shillings to actually take all the bones. So then he was given all the bones, and the idea was originally that they wanted to put them into a, a niche. They wanted to build a new niche in the church wall 
a bit like the mortuary chest that you have in the Winchester Cathedral to have the same idea. They would be buried in a nice kind of wooden chest in a niche in the wall in St. Bartholomew's. That didn't happen for whatever reason. But what did happen is this is reported in a letter. It's also reported by John Mellor slightly later on when he wrote a pamphlet kind of defending his work, that they were reburied in a brick vault just outside the east end of St. Bartholomew's Church with a stone slab placed over the top of it. If you went to St. Bartholomew's before our project to actually excavate that grave, that's what you would have seen, a small stone slab with a little inscribed cross on it. So everything kind of matches. Okay. And so, and this is what became known as the unmarked grave, isn't it? Yes, correct. So, I mean, this is, sounds like such a, a mad story and it sounds like a completely lost course for archaeologists for trying to work out what's actually happened. And unfortunately, this is actually reasonably common, isn't it, for these things to happen over the years. As you listen to this, me and Team History Hit are on our way down to the Weddell Sea, joining the expedition mounted by the Falklands Maritime Heritage Trust to the place where we believe the endurance lies on the seafloor. If we find it, it'll be the greatest underwater discovery since the Titanic. So get ready. Dan Snow's History Hit podcast is the exclusive place to follow in real time the search for the lost endurance shipwreck in Antarctica, with regular episodes and updates dropping in the feed throughout the month. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, they supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. come into the story as a sort of modern 21st century scientist trying to see if there's any way of getting to the bottom of it, looking at those remains and the backstory. So you were part or you led a team actually taking this unmarked grave, excavating it to, to look at the bones, uh, didn't you, to see if, if there was any way you could back up the story that this might be Alfred the Great. So tell us what happened when you did that. 
Yeah, it was actually uh, under the auspices of a group called Hyde 900, who'd been set up as a community group to kind of celebrate the 900th anniversary of the founding of Hyde Abbey. One of the things they wanted to do was investigate this grave, because it was popularly believed that the remains of Alfred and his family were in this grave, but obviously nobody knew. And the grave was getting a bit kind of battered around. Every time the grass was cut in the churchyard, the stone on the top would get knocked a little bit. So they kind of also wanted to kind of properly honour and work out who was in the grave so they could be properly recorded and also then restore the slab because it wasn't kind of stable anymore. Nothing really happened for quite a long time. They got in contact with the University of Winchester to see what could be done, but kind of it was progressing very, very slowly. I wasn't involved right at the beginning. I think I got involved three years after kind of the project has been thought about. And then actually an, an interesting point, it was I remember watching the press conference on the identification of the remains of Richard III. I think it was in 2012, I believe, September 2012 or something. And then one of the people who was involved with High 900 was a journalist for The Times, I believe. And he then kind of let it be known to his journalist friends that there was this similar possible story in Winchester of the remains of Alfred the Great being in this tomb. So then it went a bit crazy in terms of press interest about the unmarked grave and what we were going to do and and everything else. So then we had to kind of very hurriedly think about what exactly we were going to do because there was this massive press interest and we were actually slightly worried that people might try and disturb the grave themselves because it's kind of hidden away behind the church. People could possibly have gone in the night and actually tried to open the tomb up themselves. So we got an emergency church faculty to actually excavate the grave and remove the remains so they could be protected. So we did a one-day excavation of the tomb, removed all the bones from it. There was quite a lot of quite well-preserved human remains within the tomb. They were then taken to Winchester University. Then we had to wait again to get the official permission to actually be able to examine the remains and take samples. We did a full skeletal analysis of all of the remains, managed to reassociate them into five individuals and then an extra leg. And there were five skulls, so we could put five individuals back together pretty well because there were good like differences in bone colour and size and obviously age and everything else that we could use to determine who belonged to who. But obviously the kind of the main question was who were the remains? A photograph had been taken of the remains before they were put into the tomb in the 1860s. So there was a very nice photograph of the five skulls laid out next to one another on the on the tabletop. So we were able to compare the skulls with that photograph. So we could see, yes, these are definitely the same skulls. So at least we're definite that these are the same remains that went into the grave in the 1860s. So if those remains, which you have to presume they are, they are the remains that were excavated from Hyde Abbey, we know they're the same ones that went into the tomb. So, okay, that's one good piece of information. So then, of course, who are they? So the kind of the best evidence that we could get was to do a radiocarbon date, because obviously we know Alfred died in 899, Edward died in 924. So if we're talking about Alfredian royal family, we're talking about kind of early to mid 10th century. Whereas with Hyde Abbey, founded in like 1110, 
there wouldn't be any burial then until 11.10 and then onwards. So we're talking about quite a big gap between the two sets of dates that you would expect. We also know there was kind of very little activity on the site in between, or should I say before Hyde Abbey was built on the site. So there shouldn't be human remains just that were kind of from earlier activity on the site of Hyde Abbey. There was pretty much nothing there. It was water meadows. It had not really been used for hundreds of years. So there shouldn't be just bits of bone that were from earlier activity. So we thought, right, okay, we've got these two sets of dates that we can look for. What we were hoping for, well, kind of what I was hoping for was, are we going to get 10th century? But we did the radiocarbon dates and all of the remains were medieval. Ah. So the earliest skeleton was probably one of the earliest burials at the site of Hyde Abbey. I think the date was something like 1050 to 1150 or something. They were probably one of the first burials made at the site. But then they, the, the dates went on up until the 15th century. Right. So we know for a fact they are not Alfred and his family. So then we thought, OK, that's another end point. They are medieval people who were buried at Hyde Abbey, but they're not. Alfred and his family. So that sounds like that might have been it then, doesn't it, in a way? But actually it wasn't quite because I know you then didn't want to quite give up on it and find out what happened to all of these remains from the site. So you went to have a look in Winchester Museum, I believe, looking at some other collections of bones. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. And what did you find there? Yeah, there's been a community project in the 1990s to investigate kind of everything that had happened at the site of Hyde Abbey post-dissolution. So the plan was not that they would excavate any intact medieval context from the site, just that they would look at all the disturbance that had happened. And obviously one of the things they were interested in was looking at the disturbance in the east end of the church at the time when the prison was built and everything else. So they found these large pits features in the east end of the church, actually three different pit features. And looking at the evidence, it would seem to suggest that one of them dated to the time when they were building the prison. One of them dated to John Mellor's excavations in the church. And one of them was actually a later mayor of Winchester who was also interested in Alfred because he was also called Alfred. So he did some excavation at the site of Hyde Abbey as well in the late 1890s. So they had these three pit features. They've also done quite a lot of work in the rest of the site as well. So if they've done this work, there must be human remains, surely. And I was originally told, no, we just there was just one piece of pelvis that had been found. And they'd had it radiocarbon dated and it was 17th century and there wasn't anything else. And I thought, that seems very strange to me. Like, really? This is an abbey site with a big cemetery. What do you mean there's no human remains? So I actually went to the curator and said, do you have any human bone from these excavations? And she was like, oh, yeah, we've got two boxes full of it. I was like, oh, can I have a look then? So um, I was able to then kind of map what features these human bones had been found in. And then I was really interested in the remains that had been found in any features that had been excavated in the east side of the church. So there were a few kind of scattered about, because if we're talking about these bones from the Alfredian royal family being thrown about, at the time that the prison was built, I thought, or well, maybe they'd ended up in other features that had been dug at the same time. And they may still have been there in the 1990s and then have been excavated. So I picked these particular bits of bone and we had them radiocarbon dated. I think there were like five or six 
Again, we got the same results, apart from one, which was a relatively small part of an adult male pelvis, probably a male in his 40s, maybe early 50s. That radiocarbon date was 9th to 10th century. So it was exactly the right date for either Alfred, Edward, or another male member of the family. Interestingly, actually, in terms of the fact that John Mellor was very adamant that he'd found the remains of Alfred in the 1860s, this piece of pelvis was actually in the backfill of his pit that he'd dug. So it seems that he may well have found a piece of Alfred, but unfortunately he threw him back in thinking he wasn't interesting. So that's quite a nice irony, really, in terms of the whole project. But it's interesting in terms of if you're looking at who it could belong to, you can narrow it down quite well because we have a list of the people who we think are the ones, the members of the family who were buried in Hyde Abbey. And really the only ones who match in terms of the age and the sex are Alfred and Edward, the elder. Everybody else is either the wrong sex or either completely the wrong age. So we're talking like other members of the family who were buried, they were in their uh, late teens, early 20s. I mean, there's definitely no way that this was a pelvis of somebody that young. So it basically has to be Alfred or Edward. We were like, oh, okay, this is very interesting. What else can we, is there any other way of working out? So one of the things that, as a kind of a byproduct of doing the radiocarbon dating, you get isotope data on the carbon and the nitrogen as taken as kind of standard. And I got a colleague at Durham University, Corey Philippek, to have a look at the results for me because I'd had a, a bit of a look and I'd talked to some people and they seem to be very, very strange, these results. The ratios for the carbon and the nitrogen seemed a bit odd and they weren't really consistent with other ones that I'd seen. So she had to think about it and then she, she was thinking, well, seems to be that this person was not eating very much animal protein at all. But the nitrogen seems to have an influence from kind of freshwater or brackish water fish, so something like eel. In the late Saxon period, eel was kind of a high-status food. So it seems possible that this person was eating a lot of eel, but not much animal protein. A lot of the historical sources, uh, medieval sources, talk about Alfred as having had some very severe gastrointestinal problems that he suffered with really kind of through most of his life. And it's been suggested maybe that was Crohn's disease. And animal proteins in the diet actually exacerbate the symptoms of Crohn's disease. So could it have been that this pelvis is actually Alfred and he was avoiding eating meat and he was eating eel instead? He was able to choose his diet so he could kind of like pick the things he wanted to eat that would not exacerbate his symptoms. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely possible, isn't it? And uh, that is one of the things that the sources make quite clear and that he was quite a sickly person, especially towards the end of his life. And things like carbon and nitrogen isotopes can definitely show us not just diet, but sometimes also the impact that health conditions have had on that diet. So that's absolutely a really intriguing uh, perspective on that, I think. So you have quite a lot there. So you've got the right location, you've got the right history of it, you've got the right date, and you've got some of these other clues. Would something like ancient DNA be able to solve this, do you think? I mean, the problem with ancient DNA is you're always talking about who do you compare it to? Because we don't, obviously, we don't have any other close members of his family to compare the DNA to. 
I mean, I've, I've had quite a few emails from people over the past few years since this project has become in the public eye saying, oh, I'm the 23rd great grandson of King Alpha. Can you take a DNA sample from me? I'm like, well, I don't think that would really help. So the way you'd have to go would be to be able to take a comparative sample from another archaeological skeleton who would know to be related to Alfred. But then who is that? Like, we don't really have them. There was some work done on the supposed skeleton of Alfred's granddaughter, Edith, in Magdeburg a few years ago by the University of Bristol, actually it was. And we've had suggestions in the past that we could compare the two individuals and approaches have been made to actually do that, but nothing has actually come of it up to the present time. I mean, if there are any other individuals that could be compared, if there's individuals within the mortuary chest, maybe that are relations, then there's always the possibility of doing that, whether it would produce results or not, I don't know. No, I think that would definitely have to be the only way, hasn't it? So, I mean, but it's, a, it's an exciting one because we are starting now to be able to do much more with these family relationships. So it is possible that in another 10, 20 years, I mean, we can now do things we couldn't do 20 years ago. So perhaps move fast forward another 20 years, maybe we will be able to put those connections together and see. It's quite an exciting one. But for now, it does seem, I mean, I think you're all your work is definitely bringing us much closer to solving that puzzle of what happened to him. But we're still still a little bit uncertain, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the only other possibility is there more of him to be found is that when I was revising my report on the remains and the work on the unmarked grave, I actually went into the archives in Winchester and I found what I first thought was just a reprint of the Henry Howard paper to the Antiquary Society about the work that had been done at Hyde Abbey during the time of the building of the prison. And I, so I initially wasn't interested, but then I flipped through it and I found at the end of it, there was a little note that had been appended to it by the vicar. Uh, at the time, who was called rather delightfully William Williams. And he said that, actually, no, Henry Howard was wrong when he said the bones had been thrown about. He'd actually been able to ascertain that a pit had been dug just in the corner of the grounds of Hyde Abbey. It said just where the, the bridge went over the mill stream, the bridge is still, is still there. And he said that all the remains had been reverently reburied in this pit. And interestingly, that is now under the gardens of some of the houses that were built in the 19th century in that area. So there's a possibility that if such a pit does exist, that maybe there are more remains of Alfred and Edward and other members of the family to find at some point. Fantastic. I very much look forward to following that story and seeing if anything comes out of it. Katie, that's absolutely brilliant. This is such an amazing detective story. And I think for one of the, somebody who's hailed as one of England's greatest kings of the early medieval period to end up like this is rather odd. But I think there's, there is some promise there for the future, isn't there? Yeah, there's avenues of inquiry still that could be open. Maybe one day we'll find more of him than just a little bit of his pelvis. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I certainly hope so. Katie, thank you so much for joining me today and telling me about your work. It was a real pleasure to have you here. Yeah, thank you very much for inviting me. And it's been really good to talk about it again. It's been a while. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening today. I'm Dr Kat Jarman, and this has been an episode of Gone Medieval, if you enjoyed the podcast, do remember to subscribe and feel free to leave us a review if you'd like to. You can also subscribe to our 
weekly newsletter, Medieval Mondays. Just look at the episode notes in the place you got this podcast and that will tell you exactly how to do that. Thank you again for listening. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code MEDIEVAL at checkout.